offering, we can um, proceed. I wanted to do something just to speak uh, about what's going on uh, in our world before we turn to the passage. And um, again, I thought about uh, turning to a different passage rather than uh, continuing in, in Matthew, but um, reflecting again on God's providence and his timing, I, I thought the idea of coming to him uh, was something that's very apt uh, in these days. But I wanted to um, cast your mind back to our series in the book of Revelation uh, that we conducted some, some time ago, particularly in chapter 8 and 9, where we uh, thought about the seven trumpets, where if you were there, if not, by the way, they're online, you can listen to all of them, but seven, or 8 and 9, chapter 8 and 9, the seven trumpets, I think, are particularly relevant today, because in that passage, it really, God is warning his world, and God is calling people to repentance. Now, we're, we're in between the two comings of Christ, his first coming and the second coming. We're waiting and we're watching as God unveils his plan, and that can be painful because sometimes we ask, how long, Lord? How long is this going to go on? And why do we suffer? And why do bad things happen? And who's really in control? Scotty Smith describes it as the weight of grace, the weight of grace. But if you remember back to what we said in that series often, God rules, Jesus wins, keep going, don't compromise. What we have in Revelation 8 and 9 are the warning trumpets, not unlike Joshua 6 um, in the, the, the story of Jericho. Final judgment is coming, says God, but now is the time of warning. The time to repent is here. Now, we know trumpets are loud. They are, they are things that summon us. They, they warn us. And we're supposed to listen, says God, listen to what's really going on and respond accordingly. Now, the first four trumpets, if you want to look at it later on, points to judgment through ecological disasters, natural disasters. For instance, crops will be ruined. There'll be hunger and famine. The seas will be poisoned. The, the rivers will be polluted. The sky will be darkened. Things that we all can understand and see happening even in our, this generation. Kevin DeYoung describes it as decreation, decreation. God allows his creation to be ruined, to warn his world. That's how much he loves the world, to warn the world. He will allow his creation to be ruined. Like the ten plagues in Exodus, where God says, let my people go. So we see that environmental disasters are ongoing. They are continual. They are limited. But they're all warning signs to sinful humanity of much worse to come. It's a gracious warning. Soon, by the way, it's all going to be over. And for God's people, there's the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. And we rejoice in that. Now, trumpets five and six are about satanic deception, not as relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today. But I want to finish by saying this. Pharaoh wouldn't re repent, even though he was warned by the ten plagues. Jericho did not repent, even though it was warned by the trumpets. The world generally does not listen. The world does not listen. And so as we face uncertain days ahead, we have got to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
And we've got to remember that natural disasters are not random events. They're part of the plan. God warning the world. God warning graciously. So we should not panic as God's people. And we should not apologize for his control. And we should not lose faith. By the way, we haven't reached the seventh trumpet yet, the return of Jesus. Therefore, there is still time to repent. There is time for the world to be saved. And that, I think, should stir us up to pray and to evangelize wherever we can. I particularly find that study helpful, and I commend it to you. If you are wondering, what on earth is God doing? Why is this happening? Then let's turn to what the Word has to say, not what the world has to say. That was your starter. This is the now the main course. So if you're timing it, the time starts <laughs> now. If you've been with us over the last few weeks in Matthew's Gospel, you'll have noted a change in mood, okay? A change in mood. Chapter 10 was exciting because Jesus had trained up, was sending out the disciples to do ministry in his name. And Jesus warned them, there's going to be opposition, even persecution. That's what's coming, he says. Chapter 11, Matthew reveals how people were beginning to react to the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus through the apostles. And the mood is changing. We have, for instance, doubt from John the Baptist. Of all people, John the Baptist doubts. Are you the promised Messiah, he asks in verse 3. Because he looked upon what was going on and that nothing really seemed to have changed. Rome was still in charge. Sin was still rampant among the people. Politicians and religious leaders were just as corrupt as ever before. Everyone and everything seemed to be as bad as it always had been. And, and, and John says, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus points to Isaiah and to his prophecies and says, yes, I am. And we dealt with that last week. So John the Baptist doubts. We also have people becoming generally fickle. Verse 16, for instance, where this generation had a, an impossible-to-please attitude. An impossible-to-please attitude. Do you, do you ever meet people like that? Impossible-to-please. They criticized John because he was too conservative. They criticized Jesus because he was too liberal. You couldn't please them. No matter what Jesus did, they weren't going to repent. They watched and they witnessed. They enjoyed and they benefited. But they would not believe they would not believe. So John the Baptist doubts. The people were fickle. They couldn't be convinced. Wouldn't be convinced. And some of these people, by the way, went even further from doubt into disbelief. So that's what we're really thinking about today. Many of these people saw the miracles, heard the teaching, but unlike John the Baptist, who wanted to be convinced and in fact was convinced, these people used their doubts as an excuse not to believe. So how did Jesus respond to this doubt moving into disbelief? I'm just not talking about individuals here. We're talking about towns, cities of people. Well, Jesus reacted very clearly, very firmly, and very 
graciously. Just two points this morning. The first one's longer than the second, so um, beware of that. First of all, he denounces the unrepentant, verse 20 to 27, and then he calls the weary in verse 28 to 30. First of all, he denounces the unrepentant. In many ways, verse 20 is a a summary verse. The details are given uh, in the uh, rest of the section. Verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Now, what we're going to see here is something new. We've, we've, We've never heard Jesus preach like this before. I mean, John the Baptist was the firebrand. He was the hellfire and brimstone preacher, yeah. But here we have Jesus. For the first time, we're hearing him denounce people and cities. Woe to you, he says, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He speaks to these three cities, Galilean towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then later on, Capernaum. Now, you've got to remember that Jesus had taught most of his truth in these cities, and he had performed most of his miracles in these towns. Woe to you, he says, because you would not believe and you would not repent. That's what he says to these people. Now, Capernaum, if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, was his base while he uh, ministered in Galilee. Chorazin and Bethsaida were close by, just a few miles away from Capernaum. And all of these cities, these three cities, would have had front row seats to his ministry. We've got plenty of uh, front row seats free this morning. But I'll tell you what, these folks had front row seats to the ministry of Jesus through miracles and through teaching. And there was minimal impact. Minimal impact. If you, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 5, it explains that Jesus was in Capernaum. And it was here. Do you remember, this? Do you remember the healings? The centurion's servant was healed. It was here that Peter's mother-in-law was restored. It was here that the paralyzed man got up and walked. It was here that Jairus' daughter, dead, came back to life. Do you think that was enough evidence? Such evidence of being the Messiah, about being the king, was presented to these people. And it was a regular occurrence in Capernaum. And we can guess these other towns nearby also witnessed these miracles and all the teaching. And they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They wouldn't believe. No repentance, no believing. Yes, they were amazed. We read that, and they were impressed, and and they were astonished, but utterly indifferent, disinterested, unresponsive, unmoved. Content to watch, listen, even to be entertained, but no trust. No 
repentance, and no believing. Folks, that's such a dangerous position to be in, isn't it? To witness firsthand the miracles, the teaching of God, and not be changed. Jesus knew they, as we are, are facing a day of judgment. And therefore, in his gracious love, Jesus needed to challenge them again. He he needed to shock them. He needed to shake them out of their unbelief. And perhaps that's exactly what some of us need today. Because we've got so used to hearing about these wonderful things that God has done. But has it led us to repentance? I think this explains this confrontational approach of Jesus at this particular time. Woe, he says. Woe to you. Now, of course, when you hear that word woe, um, what do you hear? I'm sure we're maybe tempted to think, oh gosh, Jesus lost it. He lost his temper. He, he, he's, he's, he's bitter. He's angry. How dare these people not respond to me? They have smacked me across the face. They have insulted me. But I don't hear that. I don't see that. I don't think we see Jesus losing his temper or venting his frustration. I think verses 20 to 24 must be read in the light of 28 to 30. Because what does he say in 28? Come to me. Come to me. Yes, Jesus uses strong language. Yes, he denounces these cities. But there's grace here. A lot of authority. Yes, but... There's grace. It's not a loss of temper. It's an invitation to respond. And his point, of course, is very clear. If you do not repent, there will be consequences. Jesus goes on in those verses 21 to 26 to give us the details. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a time of account. Don't miss it, folks, he says. Don't miss it. Don't waste all the blessings you have received. Because so easily we can. I'll put all this up because um, I didn't know what to put in, what to leave out, so I thought I'll throw it all in for you there. I think the point of this is this, that greater revelation results in greater accountability. The more that we receive in revelation, the more accountability we will face. In other words, the greater our knowledge of Jesus Christ is, the more serious is our dismissal of him. The the greater our knowledge of Jesus Christ, the more severe is our punishment from him. I think that's what he's saying in verses 21 to 26. Tyre and Sidon, were infamous for their immorality, their greed, their pride, their arrogance. They were no friends of God's people. In fact, they often persecuted God's people in the Old Testament period. Chorazin and Bethsaida were not like this in any way. In fact, they were part of Israel. Part of Israel. But, this is what Jesus says, Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they had witnessed the ministry of God through me in the way you have. And they would, have, they would have put on sackcloth and ashes, evidence of deep sorrow and repentance. They would have believed. 
They would have believed the teaching and the miracles. So clear was the evidence. But Chorazin and Bethsaida witnessed it all, and they would not believe. They saw it all with their very eyes. They enjoyed the benefit of healed bodies, restored minds, seeing people, and still, they did not believe, and they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. They knew who Jesus was. They were offered salvation. They saw the evidence, but they would not believe. See, all this knowledge and the experience made their rejection all the worse. Because greater revelation results in greater accountability. Verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, if Tyre and Sidon were bad, Sodom was the worst it was the worst city ever. Full stop. Sin City, capital S, capital I, capital N. Sodom knew nothing of Jesus Christ. Capernaum, on the other hand, saw all that Jesus did. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Sodom was destroyed by God because of its rape, even of angels and the violence and the godless living. And Jesus is saying that if the most sinful city in history had witnessed the ministry of Jesus, then the way that Capernaum had, then it still would have existed today. Sodom would still be in existence today. Because Sodom, even Sodom, would have repented. See, greater revelation results in greater accountability. The greater our knowledge of Jesus Christ, the more serious is our dismissal of him, and the more severe will be our punishment from him. We are privileged people, aren't we? Here's, here's the frightening thing, or I suppose the, the wonderful thing, depending on which way you look at this. Even today, we have heard more of the gospel than Tyre Sidon and Sodom ever heard. Think about that. We have heard more than they did. We have the complete scriptures. We have one, two, three, four, four gospels filled with eyewitness testimony about Jesus. We have over a dozen epistles filled with explanation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what it all means. We have more resources than any other age, all to help us understand, all to help us to believe and to respond. And therefore, we are without excuse. If we do not repent and believe, our sin is worse than Sodom's. So listen to the words of Jesus. These come from the lips of he who is, we will hear later on, gentle and humble in heart. This is what he says. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. You see, the unrepentant and the indifferent will be judged. More truth given to us means God expects more from us. More light, greater revelation, the things we receive, he demands response. And so if we reject or waste or ignore it, we will be judged accordingly. And do you see why we need to be so busy and prayerful and honest and gracious in our evangelism? Because the stakes are high. But in verses 25 to 27, Jesus explains why some believe and many do not. 25. At this time, or at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, notice in verse 20. Five, he makes reference to the wise and learned in comparison to little children. The wise and learned is Jesus sarcastically referring to those who are intelligent in their own eyes and who rely on human wisdom to disregard God's wisdom. That's what he's really referring to there in the term wise and learned. Smart people are not excluded from the kingdom of God of course, but only those who trust in their smartness. That's what Jesus is really saying. Paul, for instance, is a a perfect example of that. He was a brilliant scholar, highly educated, but he stopped relying upon his intelligence to understand spiritual and godly things. So it's not intelligence that shuts people out of, of the kingdom, but it's, it's intellectual pride that does. And so intelligence isn't the problem. It's intellectual pride that is the problem. That's what Jesus is saying here. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, are you intelligent? Yes, some of you are nodding your head, yeah. Intelligence is one gift that God may have given to you. But when intelligence is perverted by pride, it can become a barrier to God. It can become a barrier to God. So the wise and the learned can be religious as well as irreligious. Oh yeah, you can get very religious, wise and learned, or you can get irreligious, wise and learned. But as far as salvation is concerned, there's not much difference between the two of them. Because both will lead them to reject the gospel. Such pride will be judged. Little children, on the other hand, that doesn't refer to physical age, but to a humble spiritual attitude. Little children, we know what they're like. They're in crash this morning. By the way, just to say, crash was deeply cleaned this morning for your little ones, if you're thinking about that. 
And as far as I understand, those who went to Bubbles and Splash were washing their hands and doing all kinds of things. We're trying our hardest to make sure that our children are safe. But little children are dependent on others to provide everything. They, they have few abilities, little knowledge, limited resources. And it's to spiritual babies or babes who acknowledge their utter helplessness. It's those that God reveals his truth to. And by his Holy Spirit, they understand their awful sin is disgusting, that the Savior Jesus is their only hope, and that they must repent and believe. So that's the difference between the wise and the learned who refuse to do this and the so-called little children who do. So let's be clear. The contrast is not between those who are clever and those who are ignorant, or those who are educated and uneducated, or those who are brilliant of mind or slow of mind. The contrast is not that. The contrast is between those who think they can save themselves by their wisdom and by their works, or who don't think they need to be saved at all, and those who rely on Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. In verse 27, of course, is the verse that causes a lot of people a lot of difficulty. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What we see here again, and it was prayed for in our prayer meeting this morning, the Son, Jesus, chooses. We've seen this in, recently in our studies in Ephesians. This is difficult for some, I know. But here, here's what I think we've got to do, folks. Let us be like little children, and not like the so-called wise and learned of verse 25. And let's listen to what Jesus is saying here. He chooses to reveal the Father to people. God takes this sovereign initiative to rescue. Now, some, the, the wise and the learned, cry out, this is not fair, they say, this is not fair. But do you know what is fair? Do you know what would be fair? That not one of us would be saved. That's fairness. Because he's not obligated to save anyone. The fact that some are saved is a sign of his grace and mercy. He's sovereign, he's merciful, he's gracious and mysterious. And when it comes to such issues, I often urge people to think the way Paul thought. In Romans 9, verse 20, Paul says this, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? I find that helpful. Maybe you don't, I find it helpful. Because little children, that's what they say. Little children say, I do not always understand, Father. I do not understand this mysterious teaching, Jesus. Sometimes it fries my head when I try to work it all out. But I'm not going to talk back to you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust your word. The thing is, why should we trust him? Why should we trust his word? Well, that leads us to these last verses. We can trust him with what verse 27 says, because he's the one who calls. This is the good news. And I think the, the point of this whole section is to allow Jesus to extend this wonderful invitation to us. And the invitation comes, um, because we're stuck for time, it's basically in, in, in three things he says. Come to me, he says. Come to me those of you who are weary and burdened. Verse 28, come to me all 
you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Weary of what? Well, weary of trying to please people. Don't we spend a lot of our time doing that? Weary of trying to please self. Weary of trying to please God. Weary of trying to be good, to be religious, to work our way, earn our way to salvation. Weary of all of that kind of living. Weary of doubt. Weary of the confusion that's in our heads. Weary of talking back to God and saying, this is not fair, God, what, the way you do things. Weary of just being worried. And today there's so many people are worried about their very lives or the lives of their parents or others. We're weary. And, and Jesus says, come to me. He says, to those who are burdened, burdened, aware of their sin, burdened by their guilt, their disappointment, their emptiness, their frustration, burdened. Jesus says, come to me. And come to me basically means hand over your sin and your cares and your failures and your worries and your sadness and your emptiness and your pride. Hand them over, he says. And trust me to take care of them all. Rest is what we need. And rest is what he gives. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you today weary? Burdened? A loss, you've lost a loved one recently. You're worried about the virus. You're worried about your own health, your financial situation, your job. Worried about your sin and your rebellion. Are you worried, burdened? Come to me, says Jesus. And he will give us rest. By the way, he doesn't offer us lounging, you know. Um, he offers us a perfect relationship, a bit like Eden, where life will be as it was supposed to be. That's what he offers us, rest. Come to me. Notice all, all of you. Come to me, all of you. It's not limited to a certain group of people. All are invited. All can come. And that's a beautiful balance to what was said in verse 27. I have absolutely no problem with that. And so the question is, have you? Because I can assure you that nothing better can be given by anyone to anyone else than the rest to people who are burdened and weary. And what Jesus is saying here is, come to me, Chorazin. Come to me, Bethsaida. Come to me, Capernaum. Come to me, Richill. Come to me, Hamilton's Bond. Come to me, Lockall. Come to me, Tandragee. All of you who are weary and burdened, don't try and live without me. It can't be done. Come to me. And I will give you rest. And then he, he says also, learn from me. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, yes, come to me and allow me to teach you. In other words, leave your pride behind. Leave all your human logic behind and accept what I say. Even verse 27. That your reaction to that 
Leave it behind. Allow me to teach you. That's what he says. And he will teach us about everything, about salvation, about life, about truth, about the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the church. That's what he'll do. See, it's not just pardon that we receive, but a new life where he sets us free to live in a new way. So we come to him and we commit to his way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke results in rest. It is easy and it is light, as verse 30 tells us. How are they? Well, this is the commands of God and the teachings of God and what we have to learn. They are simple and they are clear. We make them complicated by the way we think, but his commands are loving and they're the best way to live and they're the good path to walk on, says Jesus. Hey, take them upon you. My yoke, easy, light. It works. It works. It's the only thing that works. Jesus calls the weary. Come to me, learn from me, and, and you will find rest. That's said twice, verse 28, and also verse 29. Doubters and unbelievers never have rest. Our world is a world of restlessness, isn't it? Restlessness. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I I know what's going on in some of your lives, and I can tell you, there's restlessness. I mean, do the pleasures of the world give rest? Does career success give rest? I mean, what about sexual immorality? What about popularity? Do these things give rest? We know the answer. No, they don't. Because one minute we might have these things, and seemingly trying to squeeze as much joy or rest out of them, and the next moment we lose them. Or, actually, worse than that, sometimes these things, including things like sexual immorality, or the pleasures of the world, they bring disaster into our lives. We know that, don't we? Jesus says, Come to me. Learn from me. I will give you rest. He alone pays the price of sin. He alone purchases us with his blood. Rest, it's a beautiful word, isn't it? I'm looking forward to a wee bit of that rest this afternoon, aren't you? Rest. No more anxiety because things are in his hands. No more working to please God because we're already rescued. Yeah, I probably a bit like yourself. I'm watching the news day and daily. And sometimes I wonder, what's going to happen? And then, as this week, as I've been preparing this, come to me, he says, and learn from me, and you will find rest. We can rest in his peace and know calm in the midst of turmoil, and we can relax in his love. Whether we're living or whether we're dying, we can have rest. Whether we're rich or poor, we can have rest. Whether, for better or for worse, we can have rest. Whether we have health or coronavirus. We can have rest. So let's conclude. There will be a day of judgment, and we need God's truth so to be ready. 
And we've got to be people, and we can be people who are no longer in our doubts or even in our disbelief. We don't need to be there. We can trust and believe. Why? (laughs) Because if we come to him and if we uh, learn uh, from him and if we receive his rest, then we can be secure. I I suppose the question that screams out to us is, are we ready for that day of judgment? I mean, have we actually come? Have we learned from him? Are we learning from him? And have we found rest? How we find rest? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. May God help us to do that again and again. Father, we thank you for this beautiful end to some hard teaching, but we know that even in the hard teaching there are things for us to learn and to benefit from. We pray that right across our community and our world, many, many people will come to you, those who are weary and burdened, and that you will give them beautiful rest, that they will learn from you and find rest, because your yoke is easy, and your burden is light. Bless us, Father, in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.